for two months, he had not been walking because his leg hurt him so bad. I'd never seen him without his hip and knee flexed because he couldn't straighten him out because it hurt so bad. And we did surgery on him yesterday. We did an endoscopic surgery. He woke up from surgery an hour and a half later and was laying flat on his back with his legs straight and smiled at me and said, I don't hurt anymore. Welcome to the now and future of orthopedics, a Campbell Clinic podcast. And I'm your host, Sam Coates. Over a century years old, Campbell Clinic physicians are recognized national and international leaders in the field of orthopedics. With engaging conversations and stories, you'll hear how our physicians integrate the latest orthopedic treatments and medical advancements in musculoskeletal care through their continued and ongoing clinical research, innovation, teaching, and the writing of Campbell's operative orthopedic textbook. To learn more about Campbell Clinic, go to campbellclinic.com. And for more podcast episodes, search the now and future of orthopedics wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Our guest today is Dr. Chad Campion. Dr. Campion is a fellowship-trained spine surgeon with clinical experience at the Campbell Clinic. Dr. Campion attended the Stevens Institute of Technology, one of the oldest technological universities in the United States. He attended medical school at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, and performed his residency at UT Campbell Clinic. He did his fellowship at Norton Leatherman Spine Center. Join us for this episode where you will hear the responsibility that you carry with you day in and day out with your patients. What's easy to take for granted with the growth and impact of Campbell Clinic? The reduced time of recovery from endoscopic procedures, plus so much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Dr. Chad Campion. Dr. Campion, great to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm curious, would you share what's the care, what's the responsibility that you have as an orthopedic spine surgeon for your patients that you carry with you day in, day out? I mean, my ultimate goal is to make everybody better and get back to whatever it was they wanted to do and were doing before they got hurt. So on a daily basis, I'm thinking about, number one, the people who I'm either operating on that day or operating on the day before, and just how they're doing, but also the people I see in clinic that are either doing well or not doing well. On a daily basis, I'd say I'd probably think about 50 patients, just something about them, uh, either what they're going through, what I uh, am planning on doing for them or to them for the surgery. But yeah, it's on a daily basis. There's definitely many patients that go through my mind. And many of them are over and over and over throughout the day and throughout the weeks. So what you're saying is every patient you're with, you're completely focused on them and their situation, but you have 49 other patients that you're thinking about and you care about as equally. And it's just constantly trying to make sure that everybody is back to where they need to be. Yeah. Luckily, it's more when I'm driving or walking or at home, unfortunately, for my wife. But yeah, (laughs) uh, more so when I'm with patients, I'm usually thinking about that patient alone. But for the most part, outside of that, when it's downtime throughout the day, there's always people running through my mind. I know you're from New Jersey. What was your first impression of Campbell Clinic, given now that you're living down in the South here in Memphis, Tennessee? <laughs> so I came down at first was during medical school. I came down for a month as a, I guess you can call it an extended interview 
where I came here, I lived with one of the residents, and I worked with them for a month. I mean, it wasn't really work. I kind of just shadowed them and followed them around and helped them do little tasks in the hospital and things. Got to meet a bunch of people. But Memphis is definitely very different than New Jersey, especially where, where I grew up in New Jersey. It was a, a definitely a different feel. When I moved down here for training, luckily, you're so busy as a resident that I didn't even really realize how different it actually was living here until I was probably a year in and looking back and at all the different things I'd done and seen and been a part of was definitely different than my life the first 26 years or whatever it was in New Jersey. But I mean, now being here, it's, uh, it's funny looking back and it's funny seeing the residents who move here every year adjusting to and realizing how, how different it is, but also how good it is and how good we do have it as residents when you have 40 or 39 other residents and however many staff we have, 46 people that are all here for the, the common goal. And it really is kind of a family environment, so it makes it easy to move down here in that environment that's very different. Is there anything you can speak to that a listener or myself, given that I'm born and raised here in Memphis, that we may take for granted about Campbell Clinic, given the fact that you're from New Jersey, you went to medical school in New Jersey, you did your fellowship in Louisville, so you've lived in several markets around the country. What can you say about Campbell Clinic here and what's being done for orthopedics that we may not realize? I, I think because it, I mean, it's been here since everyone that's alive right now has been alive. People just take it for granted that it's just the, the kind of the orthopedic group in town. But when you travel around the country, especially in orthopedic circles, everyone knows the name. I mean, the residents here get the fellowships they do afterwards because of the Campbell Clinic name. Um, because it always has been one of the leaders in the orthopedic world. Some of the residents from time to time go out and do like mission trips around the world. And one of them was somewhere in South America. I can't remember which country it was. And he walked in an OR and the guy had the Campbell's operative book, which is the book we write every couple of years, open in the operating room. Um, and that's just a normal thing around the world that that book is used to train residents and surgeons uh, around the world. But people here... Honestly, people pretty much a lot of the places around don't realize that this is what's here and the, really the, the past and history that is associated with the clinic. So you're saying the, the surgeons here and the, and the people affiliated with Campbell Clinic here, they understand that. You travel internationally and you see the influence of orthopedics around the world, but it's like a well-kept secret here a lot of times in the community. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows we're here. I think everybody knows the name, but... Unless you're really in orthopedics, I think it just kind of, it's easy to glaze over the fact that of the history of this place and how much of an impact that it really has had around the country and around the world. I know you're the only orthopedic spine surgeon in Memphis, Tennessee that does endoscopic surgery, but I'm curious, is there anything before maybe we talk about that in more detail, how would you describe the progress, the innovation of your field over the last several decades and where you see it today and the value to patients and people through communities, not just here, but all around the world. We're lucky in spine that even more so than the rest of orthopedics, the changes that have happened in probably the last 30 years have completely changed the way we do spine surgery and are continuing to change the way we do spine surgery. So, I mean, a long time ago, spine surgery used to be pretty much you basically cut somebody open, you put in a, a hook at the top and hook at the bottom, and you stretch them as far as you can, and that's their scoliosis surgery. To 30-plus years ago, 
probably 40 to 50 now. We invented these screws that you put in, and they are able to control and fix that much better. But it was still big open surgery. People were laying on their back in the hospital for weeks or months at a time. Uh, to now, I mean, for a fusion, a lot of people go home the same day or the next day. The blood loss is minimal. The risks and complications that used to be standard are luckily a lot less than they used to be. Um, they're still obviously there, but we've managed to cut down on what we have to put people through in order to really get the same or better results than we used to do. A lot of that is attributed to not only the knowledge that we've gained over that time, but also the advancements in the instrumentation we use and the technology that we have available to us, the things like robotics and navigation. And uh, recently, AI has become a, a big deal, especially in spine, as far as figuring out who to do what on and how much of it to, in order to get the best result. It, it's all made a huge impact on short and long-term outcomes for patients. A couple of weeks ago, I was with another surgeon from Campbell Clinic, and he talked about this patient and how they had gone to, I believe it was three different surgeons prior, and this person was not able to get what she needed. And this Campbell Clinic surgeon was able to communicate with one of their mentors up in the Northeast, and he talked about just the benefit of community, the benefit of collaboration, the benefit of sharing progress, and how it was instrumental in transforming this patient's life back to where it needed to be. Is there anything that you could speak to that sticks out to you as an orthopedic spine surgeon? What actually drives progress, innovation, all of these advancements that are continuing to benefit people the way that you just described it? I mean, a lot of it is the patients themselves. At the end of the day, they're the ones that we do this for. They're the ones that are benefiting when things go well and uh, unfortunately having problems when they don't go well. So they're doing well and telling that to people then wants, makes other people want to be in the same shoes as them, and that pushes surgeons to do things better or they get kind of left behind, which also puts pressure on companies to make advancements, to make surgeries shorter, less painful, uh, quicker recovery. Because at the end of the day, if the patient does well, they're going to tell that to people who are also going to want to do well and have this, the same surgery they had, whether it's a good surgery or not. If they did well, they're going to tell people about it. So I think patients are the ultimate ones that drive that. As physicians, it's on us to help aid them in that uh, kind of quest, though, to, for the, the better surgery, especially when they may be somewhat misguided at times. But ultimately, I think the patients are the ones that are driving it. At the end of the day, they're the, uh, the, the final consumers of everything we do. And so that's what's driving the progress. Yeah. Better I, treatment, better technology. Better out. Everybody wants to be 25 forever. So whatever keeps them there or gets them closest to that goal, people are going to want, which especially in, in spine has really pushed the ball forward as far as making things more minimally invasive, less fusion type surgery, um, anything that makes people get back to where they used to be and want to be has really been pushing forward everything that we're doing and looking to do down, down the road. Earlier, I referenced this, and we were talking about it a lot before we started recording, but you're the only orthopedic spine surgeon here in Memphis, Tennessee, that performs endoscopic surgeries, correct? Correct. And you're the only one within a really good distance within this area in the Mid-South and other parts 
across the Mississippi River that does it as well. So could you maybe explain for somebody like myself or others that weren't really familiar with endoscopic surgery and really what the benefit is to the patients that you see? So I'm keeping in line with that kind of getting people back to being where they want to be quicker, uh, the minimally invasive side of things, the endoscopic surgery is the, I mean, people call it ultra minimally invasive way of doing surgery, where the goal is to get, do the same surgery that we'd always done, but do it in a less invasive and destructive way so people have less pain, less recovery afterwards. And essentially the endoscope is it's just a, a camera. It's a, a long camera that allows me to get into the spot where either the disc herniation, whatever is causing somebody's pain, and be able to address it without having to make a big incision like we used to um, have to do to get in the same spot. Earlier, you were talking about a patient that came over, was a college athlete, I believe, came over from northwest Arkansas to get a surgery with you. Is that correct? Correct. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so he had been lifting, I think it was, doing deadlifts or something, and had some back pain, and then a couple days later started having pain going down his leg. His leg was kind of numb, especially in his foot, and he was limping when he walked and really wasn't sure what exactly what was going on. He had seen one of my partners who sent him over to me. We got an MRI, and he had a, a disc herniation that was pushing on a nerve in his back that goes down his leg, um, the sciatic nerve, like most people hear of the sciatica. And he, he, I mean, he's a college athlete. All he wanted to do was get back to playing baseball. So we talked about trying physical therapy and see if it gets better, which it usually does over a month or six weeks. Unfortunately for him, it did not. It only kind of continued to get worse. So we talked about surgical options. Uh, at that time, I had really only just started doing endoscopic surgeries, I believe. Um, so I, I gave him the option. I said, we can either do it the way that I've always done it, the way I've been trained to do it, which is a three-centimeter incision or so. We cut in your back. We cut away some of the muscle. We drill away some of the bone, get in there, and take out that piece of disc that's pushing on that sciatic nerve and causing your pain. And the second option would be the endoscopic surgery, which is the same surgery, the same outcome. We take out that piece of disc, but instead I just make a eight millimeter incision and basically dilate through your muscle, get to the same spot and do the same thing with really the biggest difference for him was his pain afterwards, um, which uh, after endoscopic surgery is usually pretty minimal and the recovery and how quickly I let him get back to doing things which again, for him, I took it a little bit slower than I would have otherwise for somebody who wasn't a college athlete. Um, I think we kept him down for a couple of weeks outside of uh, throwing. But I mean, I wanted him to get back to running in straight line after even a couple of days. Um, whereas the other one, I would have really kept him down for probably about six weeks. So he was back to almost a normal within two weeks. Yeah, two weeks, he was pretty much normal and getting back into his normal training routine. And the other option, it would have been at least six. I would have definitely kept him down for probably about six weeks. Uh, I would have let him do some light activity, uh, some upper body strengthening. I would not have really wanted him throwing at all, uh, definitely for at least six weeks. I shared this before we started recording that I saw that roughly 80% of adults will have some sort of back issue. And you said probably even higher than that. To help people like myself or others maybe understand how valuable is this and how valuable will it be in the future for adults, given the fact how many people have back issues? So I mean, as far as the endoscopic stuff in the future, 
I think it's probably going to be a different version of this. Um, the, uh, we had talked a little bit about uh, the endoscopic stuff has now become about 60% of my practice because now I don't have to fuse people where I used to have to do that just because of the way the old surgeries were done. A lot of times you end up having to fuse somebody's back because you destabilize them. There is a push across the board to really do surgeries that are not changing people's bodies in a way where we don't want to fuse people's necks or backs as much as we used to. So probably down the road, they're going to focus more on these less invasive and less fusion surgeries where maybe it'll be endoscopic, but probably it'll be something along those lines. But I mean, especially with the population, the way we have it, I mean, we, we do these surgeries on young people, old people, and everywhere in between. The nice thing is we're able to do a surgery where we're, we're able to get people in and out of surgery in the hospital with hopefully minimal problems and minimal time in between. But, I mean, as far as 80%, I mean, because I'm a spine surgeon, my phone goes off constantly with family and friends. I think almost every person in my family has back problems. So I think it probably is more than 80%. And I think with our active lifestyles, it's probably only going to continue to go up uh, as far as how many people have some kind of back problem or other. But luckily, with these new techniques and new technologies, hopefully down the road, the treatments will continue to be less invasive and less destructive where it's not a, bit, a big deal if you have a back problem. Whereas, I mean, I still see patients every day who are terrified of any kind of back problem because they think that they're doomed for a life of 15 back surgeries and being in wheelchair bound after a couple of years, which is luckily not the case by any means. Otherwise, there's no way I'd continue to, to, to do this. I read one of your patients. He said, Dr. Campion listened and answered all of my questions as well as my husband's. I've been thinking about having surgery on my lower back for a while, but honestly, I'm a little scared. He made me feel very comfortable and did not push me in any direction on the surgery. He even said I, I was welcome to come back and talk again. Nobody asked me to pull that. There were several other very positive uh, testimonials on your page. I'm just curious, when you go back to that athlete, and you were, it sounded like the way that you said it, you were honest with him about his options. What have you learned with not just him, but all your patients, how to build trust, how can people feel understood, and then how can they feel comfortable to make the best decision and ultimately trust you to go for a newer surgery, but that gave this person a lot of benefit, at least the way we've talked about it up to right now? Uh, I mean, luckily or unluckily, I've had surgeries myself, so I know some of the apprehension and even distrust people may have towards that. And I, I tell everybody, my job is to basically tell them the worst possible things that can happen with any surgery, where at the end of it, they kind of look at me wide-eyed, like, why would I let anybody ever do any of this to me? But I tell them, all those things are very, very rare. They happen as far as the bad things. But I also tell them, if you, most of the time, do not want to have surgery, there's absolutely no reason you have to have surgery. And I, I try to be honest with them. If it's something that I think, if we don't do a surgery— they'll get worse than I tell them. If it's something I think is going to pretty much be the same today as it is next week or next year, then I tell them, you tell me basically when you're ready for surgery or not. And if you have a question, then we can call and talk on the phone. You can come back, whatever you want to do. But my job is to give you the options, tell you what different things look like, what those different outcomes are, and let you decide. Uh, one of the hardest things is when patients ask me what I would do because I feel like it's an unfair question, because I know 
all the bad things and all the good things that can happen. And I see them every single day. So my perspective is a little bit different. And I, I think, accept a little bit more than some other people would. So I try not to tell people what I would do because I'm, a, a, by all means, a minimalist. I try to do everything I can to avoid surgery, and I try to impress that upon patients where I think, I don't want somebody operating on my back. So I try to be honest with them. If I don't want somebody operating on my back, I don't want to do it to you unless you're at a point where I think it's, number one, going to help you, and number two, you think you don't have any other way to be helped. And we've tried everything else we can uh, to get you there. And I think people appreciate that to some degree. I think it aggravates some people because they just want me to tell them what to do. But I, especially for surgeries, I don't tell anybody you need to have this surgery unless I absolutely think they're going to be harmed if they don't. Earlier, you were talking about robotics, navigation, AI. And I know you went to a very well-respected undergraduate institution at Stevens Institute of Technology. Can you speak to anything, given the fact that you're the only endoscopic spine surgeon here at Campbell Clinic and here in Memphis and a lot of the area here? Is there anything that you can speak to to your background that's important for continuing to understand and see innovation, the benefit to the patients, and really the skill sets that are needed to do this work and to serve people the right way? Going back to what you asked before about uh, driving things forward, and I, th I think as far as patient care, that's what we're always trying to do is move things forward and make things better for patients. And innovation, whether it's technological or technique-driven, is the way that we can ultimately do that. I think my background at Stevens, since you mentioned it, probably did have some influence on me. I, I think one of their pillars is innovation. <laughs> so they definitely impress that upon people while you're there to look at uh, ways to make things better and do things uh, better and think a little bit outside the box. I didn't invent any of this stuff by any means. <laughs> I think it is a, a good tool to, to use, and I definitely do use robotics and navigation and the endoscopic surgery on a daily basis uh, every time I'm in the OR because I think it is a way that we can basically perform better surgeries. They're more reliable surgeries, they're safer surgeries, and people ultimately do better with them. So yeah, I think my time at Stevens probably did push me towards uh, being more accepting of this, where some other people may be a little bit more hesitant, possibly. Is it common to say that even in a lot of medical schools around the country, a lot of people aren't fully where they need to be on fully understanding how to take advantage of this innovation technology? Yeah, well, I think their argument would be that it's not totally proven and accepted yet. And to some degree, there may be some merit to that. But the thing is, in the U.S., we are historically slower at adopting, adapting to certain things and adopting certain techniques. And in Europe, especially, uh, for at least for the endoscopic surgeries, that's been around for a long time. Um, and they've been using it for many different problems that we don't even use it for technically for over here. So I think it's a little bit disproven from that standpoint. And I talk to endoscopic surgeons all the time that have done this for years. And you can see it in the results that it is better at doing the same procedure with really less collateral damage uh, than the historic procedures that we had been uh, using. And the data shows that? There is data that shows that uh, actually pretty well. They're still coming out with some things, but I mean, as far as infection, the rate is lower. Complications, uh, there's a new literature that in a big study, the, the rates of complications were lower. 
again, there's things coming out daily, but I would say at the very least, it is no worse, and it is probably uh, better as far as outcomes and complications than uh, some of the older procedures. And I think robotics and navigation are the same way. There's a lot of people that don't use a robot or navigation because they either just think, well, I can do it the way I've always done it, and I've done just fine. Why would I need to spend time to learn how to do this? Or it is a large investment also. It's a lot of money that you don't get paid back by the insurance companies for using those things. But there's good data that navigation and robotics are safer than doing some of the older techniques and prevent you having to go back to the OR for for certain things. With the caveat, all these things can be used in a right way or a wrong way. And if you use them in the wrong way, then bad things happen. And the robot's not going to save you that. The robot is not a surgeon. The robot does not make decisions. Same thing with the endoscope. Yeah, it's probably safer if you understand what you're doing, you know what you're doing, you're comfortable. But, I mean, you can do bad things with a, a pencil. You can certainly do bad things with a robot or an endoscope when you're working around somebody's spine. Earlier we talked about, you were sharing how surgeons will do mission trips around the world, and they were in other parts of other parts of the world, and they would see the orthopedic textbook. What does that mean to you that Campbell Clinic is a thought leader leading and pushing progress and growth around orthopedics around the U.S. and in the world for Campbell Clinic to also buy in and invest in robotics, in navigation, in these things that you're talking about that give so much value to the patient? I mean, I I came here uh, as a resident to train for that fact that it was the uh, one of the thought leaders around the world and had been training people to do the best surgery uh, in the world for now a century. And that was why I initially came down here. And now to be on staff as part of it and but working on writing the, the next edition of the book, it's almost hard to believe it's at some points. But it's fun to be a part of because everyone here does buy into the mission of innovation and patient care and moving the ball forward and not just standing there looking back at what we had done and kind of patting ourselves on the back. Uh, we're constantly looking to, to the future and how we can do things better and take care of people uh, in a better way. So it's a fun thing to be part of, and people here really buy into that to really push the ball forward. Strong enough to get you down here from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yep. Meet your wife and have your first kiddo down here. Yep. I didn't ask you this, but earlier I asked you, before we started recording about the time off, the recovery, and you covered a lot of that here. Does the endoscopic surgery, does that cost more than traditional ways of handling things? So uh, from a patient perspective and from an insurance perspective, no. They they both bill the same and uh, the, the code for them is the same. So they cost exactly the same to a patient and to the insurance company. It actually costs more for us to perform that procedure than a lot of the other procedures. And the same thing with any of the the technology, uh, such as robotics and navigation, there is at best a, a, a very small reimbursement for using those things. And it, unfortunately, there is a huge cost to the surgeon, surgery center, hospital, uh, whoever is really buying into that to be able to use it. But yeah, from a pa- patient perspective, it's exactly the same. So you and Campbell Clinic are doing this work for the good and value of the patient, not for your own profit. I guess you can look at it that way. We certainly make a lot less money by doing the endoscopic surgery versus the the traditional surgery, yeah. And so for somebody listening to this, what are the issues might they be having 
What's the pain that they might be feeling? What are their daily circumstances where they might be a good candidate to really try to understand this more and, and find you and your resources? So the endoscopic surgery is good for, like we talked about, uh, a disc herniation causing sciatica, which is, um, like we talked about, back pain. And then it's pain that a lot of times goes in people's buttocks, down their legs and into their feet. And a lot of times they'll have numbness or burning pain or uh, even weakness uh, in the muscles of the, the legs. You can also have the same kind of uh, scenario in your neck, which goes down your arms. And like we talked about, luckily, most people with a couple weeks of physical therapy and medicine, that gets better because your body naturally gets rid of that disc herniation, takes the pressure off of those nerves. It's the people where that doesn't work when we start talking about surgery. And really, anybody that has those symptoms and has a disc herniation that we see on an MRI can certainly be a, a candidate for endoscopic or the, I don't want to, I'm not talking bad about the traditional surgeries, tubular discectomies, micro discectomies, they're great surgeries. And they, I mean, people wake up and their leg pain is gone and they're extremely happy. And I still do that on some people. It's just now that I've started picking up the endoscopic surgery. It's my choice because it's what I would want done to me. And I still give people the option. I say, hey, if you want to do the one that you've heard about that your friend had, I'm happy to do that. But this is another option. It's just another tool that I can use and another option I can give somebody to make them feel better. But the nice thing about the endoscopic also is as far as who is a candidate, we talked about that baseball player. I think the youngest person I've done this on is in their late teens uh, which is I try not to operate on anybody that young, but sometimes people have discarnations that just don't get better. And uh, I think we talked about next week I'm doing somebody who's almost 90 years old. Uh, and there's everywhere, everyone in between. For older people and sicker people, one of the nice things about endoscopic surgery is that you don't have to use general anesthesia all the time. You can do it. We call it awake. You are not really awake. You're asleep but you're not uh, intubated. Uh, you don't need general anesthesia. And the nice part of that is for people that are sick and can't tolerate general anesthesia, whether it's because of a heart issue or whatever else, if they have debilitating leg pain that's caused by a disc herniation sciatica, we can still take care of them. We can't tell you, sorry, you're too sick to put to sleep. So it's, an, it's a nice thing to be able to offer people also. I don't think I asked you this earlier, but several times you referenced that surgery is not the first option. And in fact, you try to walk people through a process to where you will tell people, patients, when surgery is appropriate, but you don't want to start there. Did I hear you correctly? Absolutely. Why is that important? And why does that mean so much to you? Because like we talked about, I, I've had surgery myself. I have family members that have had surgeries and have had neck and back problems and surgeries. And I would want somebody to treat them and myself how... I try to treat my patients. So I try to tell them, I, I'm honest with them, a lot of neck and back problems usually get better with just some time. And that's the honest truth and things like medicine and therapy and injections are nice things to be able to add to that to help people through those couple weeks or months while they're waiting for this to hopefully get better. But when it doesn't, yeah, surgery is an option. But if I wouldn't want uh, somebody to do a back surgery on me, then I'm not going to tell somebody the first day I meet them, hey, let's go to the operating room and I'm going to fuse your back together because I don't think it's the right thing to do. I think you do need to build that trust and really have an honest conversation with that person so they know if they don't do anything as far as surgery, what happens. And if they do surgery, what does that look like? And what is that recovery? And what are the, the bad things that can happen in that surgery? 
So ultimately, I just want people to understand that I'm trying to treat them like a member of my family, more or less. What you're saying, the data, the information you have, and the results that you've seen time and time again, you want to treat people the right way every time. And so you don't want to rush into anything that's not in their own best interest. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to do anything on, on somebody that, especially if I think it's going to get better by itself, I, I would not put somebody through a surgery where their body is ultimately going to do the same exact thing in another couple of weeks. Last question I have, I could go a lot longer with you about navigation and AI, so maybe we'll hopefully we'll get a part two at some point. But is there a story that sticks out to you about someone within the last six months where their life was just in a rough spot because of the pain that they were in and then the life that they've been able to experience again, just getting back to where they need to be that just really meant a lot to you as a surgeon? I mean, um, I'm lucky in that I have a, a several patients that, and a lot of my patients, unfortunately, do have significant pain before they come in and see me, and certainly before surgery. Uh, as far as a specific patient, I mean, the gentleman I saw yesterday who I operated on uh, sticks out just because he's fresh in my mind, and I just spoke to him on the phone. But for two months, he had not been walking because his leg hurt him so bad. I'd never seen him without his hip and knee flexed because he couldn't straighten him out because it hurt so bad. And we did surgery on him yesterday. We did an endoscopic surgery. He woke up from surgery an hour and a half later and was laying flat on his back with his legs straight and smiled at me and said, I, I, I don't hurt anymore. And I thought it was just the general anesthesia that had still not been out of his system because his eyes were barely open. But um, I talked to him last night again on the phone, and he said, no, I'm walking around, which I hadn't done in a couple months. I don't have any pain in my legs whatsoever. My foot is not numb. And he said, the strangest part is my back doesn't even hurt. Uh, I, I can tell you were back there because I'm a little bit swollen. But overall, I, I have no pain whatsoever. And it's just cool to be able to do that to people and help people like that. That I mean, if you would have seen this gentleman, you would have thought he was about to— uh, uh, about to go crazy with how, how much pain he was in, but it, to see him an hour later in no pain whatsoever is amazing. Nothing else I need to say. What a way to end it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Now and Future of Orthopedics, a Campbell Clinic podcast. Be on the lookout for a new episode coming soon each month. And for more information about Campbell Clinic, go to campbellclinic.com and also search the now and future of orthopedics wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this episode, please do us a favor, tell a friend and leave a review. As your host, Sam Coates, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you soon.